Voyage. This podcast contains discussions of prisoner of war experiences and suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised. If you are receiving this letter, I would consider myself very lucky. I am still alive. I cannot say for sure if I will make it home. I love you all and pray that one day I will see you again. If I do not return, know that my final thoughts were of you. Being a prisoner of war in theory should have meant at least that my father was safe. He quickly found out it did not. After the surrender of the army unit Charles was serving in, he was ferried around different locations for a brief period of time. It was about May 24th. They had surrendered the 6th, and by May 24th, they were put on a Japanese landing craft. They were taken to uh, the capital of Manila. They were marched down Dewey Boulevard like there were some kind of prizes for the Japanese army. And um, they were taken to Bilibid Prison. That was like the main prison for the Philippines. It's been described as a very boring place. There was no work to do. You just kind of sat around. Uh, They had a yard you could go out into, but there was nothing to do. Just very, very boring. Um, After that, they were taken to another prison outside the outskirts of a city called Cabana Juan. Uh, you probably heard of that because of the Great Raid where they rescued all the men. Dad said that as they were marching, he fell, and he thought for sure that the Japanese guard would come off and come up and just kill him. He goes, but he just looked at him and let him get up. Um, they eventually got to Cabana Tawan. They were put in uh, one of the camps there. And it wasn't until early October when they left there. They were put on a ship called the Totori Maru. In Linda Goetz Holmes' book, Guests of the Emperor, she notes that the Totoro Maru was originally part of a British merchant fleet and was built in 1914. Later captured by the Japanese in 1942, the ship became part of Mitsubishi's shipping subsidiary, Nippon Yusen Kokan. Mitsubishi offered the cargo ship as a prisoner transport. Because there was a fee charged per head, the ships were overcrowded with POWs. It's basically just an ancient Japanese ship. Um, they were put in holds in the ship. Basically, there was no room to lie down, to sit. Uh, my dad said if someone died, they just died standing straight up because they were held up by the other men. Just disgusting conditions. All the men had dysentery. They had, I think, one toilet on the deck, which overhung into the ocean, but everyone was sick. Everyone had diarrhea. It was just all over the place. You couldn't get to the the one toilet they had. So dad said they started sending um, buckets down for them to use, which was ridiculous. That's also how their food came down. You know, just just awful conditions. Um, You know, no food, little water. um, Everyone was sick. Again, according to Guests of the Emperor, official Japanese records list 35,279 Allied POWs of all nationalities transferred by sea, of which 10,853 died en route. And that was just the ones that died by drowning. 
with dysentery, dengue fever, malaria, beriberi, and other illnesses, at least one unofficial estimate is about twice as high. A couple days later, um, they got to Formosa. They kept going in and out of the port. You know, meanwhile, these guys are down in these holds, just in these nasty conditions. Um, they kept going in and out of port. Apparently, there were American subs in the area, and they didn't mark the ships that they were American Red Cross ships or anything. So the Americans didn't know that there were actually Americans on these ships. They got to Pusan, Korea. I think that's how you say it. They were put on uh, boxcars and went all the way up through Korea into Manchuria. And he was, I think that is the point where dad said that um, they were eating anything they could possibly get a hold of. He said they would catch grasshoppers and eat them and call them French fries so they could tolerate them. They got to Manchuria, uh, I think on November 11th. It was 40 below zero. These men were finally issued a coat. There were several camps there. My dad was put in camp number, or camp C. You know, again, just horrible conditions. These, um, the camp was used previously by the, um, Japanese during uh, a war in the early part of the 20th century. And the buildings were set in the ground, I guess, to conserve heat. They were like built three or four feet into the ground. It just, just, you know, awful conditions. They were offered like a cup of rice every day, which was usually infested with, with you know, worms and everything. And I, I guess they supplemented their diet with whatever they could get hold of. <laughs> I, I'm sure they ate dog and monkeys and whatever else they could find. Oh, he had um, he had a POW buddy. That's what he called him. First, it's about the quality of the meat. Okay. I'd go to the butcher, get the best quality beef he's got. Money is no object. All right. Good salt, not the cheap stuff. Take my time, salt the whole patty. Not one inch of that patty is going to be bare. Mmm, pepper? Just a touch now. Yeah, paprika, garlic salt. None of that nonsense. Classic. Fancy don't mean better. I'm with you. Barbecue, charcoal, put a dimple in the patty with my thumb so it doesn't puff out funny on the grill. Get the flames licking it. Medium rare, nice, thick buns. I hate a tiny wrinkled bun. I want the buns big and thick. Earl, don't talk about Josephine like that. It's not polite. <laughs> Christ, Charles, don't make me laugh. They'll come and beat us again. All right, all right, all right. So we got the thick buns going. Now what? Ketchup, mayo, mustard, tomatoes from the garden, onion, lot of pickles, like six pickles. You've lost me. Hey, this isn't your burger. Eh, burger's over too quick anyway. Well, then what are you having? I am having a West Virginia pepperoni roll. The hell's that? <laughs> now listen, you might learn something. It was first made in a bakery run by Italian immigrants. It was to uh, allow factory workers and miners to take a quick lunch break with no need to refrigerate a sandwich. It's basically a small loaf of Italian bread dough, okay? Then slices of pepperoni are fried to release the oil. Mm. That's added onto the dough, mozzarella too. Some towns would add sweeter hot Italian peppers and sauce from an old family recipe brought over from Italy. It's simple, but so damn good. Italians really figured some things out. Oh, we should have gotten captured in Italy. I'd make a mess of those pepperoni rolls. 
eat them fresh, hot, when the dough's soft. I'd make enough to feed a family of six, but they're just for me. And I'm gonna sit out on my porch, watching the sunset, and eat my pepperoni rolls for an hour straight, just slowly, just nibbling my way through them, really tasting them. And once that's done, maybe I'll fall asleep in my chair. Summer, you can do that. It's warm all night. All right, well, if you're not gonna eat your rice, I will. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm eating it, all right? Um, my dad worked for Manchu Tent. He was in, in charge of a loom. Um, that's what he did. He, um, he said that they learned how to slip the threading so that there would actually be holes in the, in the tents. So that was their kind of, their kind of way of payback. These guys were patriotic down to the, <laughs> down to their last breath. Um, my understanding, there was another facility they worked at, some of the guys worked at, it was a, a machine company, it was called MKK. They actually had to build the uh, factory and when they were pouring concrete, they would um, throw in tools, machinery, and, and bury it in the wet concrete so that you know nothing could be assembled. And they said nothing left that factory because there were parts that were missing. They didn't have the tools because they had all buried it in the concrete when they were building the, the factory. They worked 12 hour days. They were given a cup of rice, you know, just sour rice. I mean, there were, there were bugs in it. They worked, they marched back to the camp. They'd go to sleep, they'd start the next day. It was just work, sleep, work. That's it. They all had dysentery. They all had barabara. Um, oh, just any vitamin deficiency they had. I mean, these guys would just, they'd, the wet barabara would make them swell up and it would affect their nerves in their, in their legs. He got pulled out of the factory once for smoking a cigarette. He was taken in front of the head of the camp um, Dad said he'd beat the crap out of him. He said he'd try and stand up and they'd beat him back down again. And this just went on and on and on. One time for some infraction, Dad said that he was put on, kind of described it like a, kind of like a cross where you're put on, you had a board put between your feet um, and your face pointed towards the sun and you were left out there for two days with no food or water. The other prisoners were encouraged not to, you know, to offer you anything. Okay, um, rabbi, priest, and a Muslim fella, uh, whatever their priest is called, they all walk into a bar. I'll have what the other guys having. You told me that one already. Uh. What do you think they'd do if I just took the wrench and beat one of those factory bosses with it? <laughs> What would they do? Same thing they did yesterday. Why? You want something worse? If I really beat them. That wrench is heavy. Three or four good swings. I mean, I could probably get those in before they pull me off them. That could be enough to kill someone. I don't know about that. Bad as they beat us, we're still alive, aren't we? Who? Doesn't matter. Well, if it doesn't matter, Earl, why do it? Because I'm not planning on getting whooped every day until the day they decide whooping isn't enough and just shoot me. 
If you want to get shot so bad, Earl, you could probably just ask them. You're not thinking straight. They could have done that already if they were in a hurry to. You find spiders in your house, what do you do? You put them in a napkin or something? No, I just... I just kill them. I put them in a napkin. Only sometimes I don't feel like it. Maybe I don't got a napkin handy. So those times, I just step on them. Rather than take 20 seconds to find a napkin, I'll kill him just for that. Earl, I don't want to have to find Josephine. It's a long way to Florida. She probably thinks I'm dead. No. Yeah, pretty girl, funny. One smile and anyone who got out of this shit be on her like these damn flies. You don't know that. She'd hold off for a bit, feel guilty. But she's there, I'm here. I can't compete with a man that can hold her hand right this second. She gets lonely easy. When you proposed, how fast did she say yes? She didn't. I thought you were engaged. <laughs> she couldn't talk. She just cried and nodded. <laughs> well then. If something happens, she lives in Crystal River. It's a small town. There won't be two Josephines there. You tell her I went out giving them some. Fighting back. Nothing is going to happen. Hey, promise me. Nothing is gonna happen. Right? Crystal River. Remember. Why did the Japanese treat the POWs so badly? To get a Japanese perspective on the subject, we spoke to Sam Coleman. Uh, hi, I'm Sam Coleman. I'm a lecturer in Japanese at California State University. I have a PhD from Columbia University and have been a Japan specialist for several decades, let's say. I come at this um, subject of the Japanese uh, military behavior in World War II from a couple of perspectives. I'm a cultural anthropologist and Japan specialist. And um, my previous research in Japan was on subjects quite different from um, Japanese World War II and afterwards um, militarism. Uh, but um, I came into this uh, studying Americans' problems of veterans' suicide, post-traumatic stress disorder, and what we now know as moral injury. My uh, wife is Japanese and her family is World War II generation. I picked up a few things from them. I was just looking at some statistics of prisoner of war deaths. You know, the American and British uh, POWs uh, held by the Germans had a mortality rate of something like 4%. For the uh, Japanese Imperial Army, I think I had the figure here, it's really remarkable, 27%. So you really want to ask, what's going on here? Was there something distinct about Japan that made Japanese prisoner of war camps so much deadlier for POWs? Look, human beings are neither good nor bad. There are situations that bring out the best and the worst of us. Um, when I teach my classes on Japan, I start off by saying, hey, um, I've got good news about the Japanese people and I've got bad news about the Japanese people. The good news about the Japanese is that they're human beings. And they're capable of all the honesty and warmth and compassion you'd ever want to see. You know the bad news about Japanese people? They're human beings. 
and they're capable of all the cruelty and dishonesty of any human group that you'd want to imagine. And then we take it from there. Uh, there is no national character. Okay. Uh, the idea of a dominant personality type in a society as complex as Japan or any other just doesn't wash out. So then someone will say, well, how do you explain this? Because there were so many atrocities, of which treatment of prisoners of war is one of them. You know, um, I want to explain them and not explain them away. I'm not making excuses for anybody. I just want certain behaviors to stop. And we don't stop those behaviors until we have a scientific understanding of them. And we start to dig in, we find out that to our dismay, a lot of those behaviors can be seen in every army in the world, including our own. What might be remarkable about the case of Japan? Um, it's how Japan ended up in its wars. They have, in terms of militarism, an incredibly rich tradition. Holy mackerel. Samurai tradition, uh, Minamoto Yoritomo, the first big case of ritual suicide, um, and it goes on and on, you know. Benkei, the warrior monk who uh, died standing up, you know. And that, as a matter of fact, that went even into their myths in the Second Sino-Japanese War in the late 1930s, World War II, where there were stories of Japanese soldiers who uh, were riddled with bullets but died standing up. You know, this, this mentality, okay? Well, if that isn't enough, what really fed into it was domestic crisis economically, okay? There was the Showa Depression of 1927, and then there was the Great Depression. Um, I think it hit Japan in 1931. And you know what we gotta think? I'll tell you what, modern wars in many ways are a revolution turned outward. You get a lot of discontent, you get a lot of fear, you get a tremendous polarization in wealth, and you get a leadership that is basically going to deal with those problems through military expansion instead of solving the problems at home. See how this is all coming together in a very, very nasty way. Um, then you get this sense also the Japanese being very insular and I do mean insular in the original sense of an island people. Remarkably little contact among the average Japanese with um, foreigners. Where do people turn for something to believe in? Are you ready for this? They turn to the Imperial Army. I mean, it's support the troops in a really big way. These were the models of virtue and purity. And most of their ranks, particularly the army, came from the poorest parts of the country. Okay, let me add something else to it, too. Redirected aggression. How does it work in terms of the Japanese Imperial Army? Their training was particularly brutal. Uh, enlisted men suffered beatings all the time at the hands of officers and non-commissioned officers. As a matter of fact, when I saw some uh, World War II movies, uh, Japanese movies after the war ended, and here were these guys getting beaten up in their barracks all the time. You know, I thought, no wonder they lost the war. They were busy hitting each other instead of us. No, that made them really frustrated, really angry, and really ready to kill practically anybody. Now, you see that in the Russian army as well. You see that then 
resulting in atrocities. There, Sam is talking about the Russian army today, in contemporary times. With so much reporting on war crimes being committed by Russian soldiers in the Ukraine, Sam is referring to the similarity in the brutality of the training Japanese and now in modern times Russian soldiers go through, and how that pain would be redirected onto the perceived enemy. You get young guys, you know, in their late teens, maybe early 20s, they don't have the prefrontal cortex completely developed, you know, they're impulsive, they're scared, they're resentful, they don't understand these people. They see the enemy as this implacable uh, foe, okay, that's going to take over the whole place if you don't stop them, okay. You see how this is all coming together? And it came together with particular intensity in the Japanese Imperial Army. You put these things together and you get people who are normally regular people doing really incredibly ugly things. You know, uh, I had thought when I was a kid, prisoner of war, oh, okay, you know, you get in a bunk and you got some bad food. No. Uh, from one minute to the next, you didn't know if you'd be hauled out and shot. And some of them were. You were expected to uh, snitch, to rat on your fellow prisoners in order to get enough food. You're arbitrarily punished. This did not bring out the best in anybody, no matter, you know, it's no surprise nobody wanted to talk about it. But simple punishment was not the only thing Charles had to deal with as a POW. What happened next would haunt my father and all the men with him for the rest of their lives. Letters from My Father is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Garrick Dion, and Dan Benamore. Executive produced by Susan Hearn. Written and directed by Dan Benamore, based on the research of Susan Hearn. The novel cited in this podcast is Guests of the Emperor, The Secret History of Japan's Mukden POW Camp, written by Linda Goetz Holmes, starring Jack Quaid as Charles and John Cahill as Earl. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Nick Nassidi. Original music by Darlis Gonzalez. If you are a veteran in need of mental health support, you can always text or call 988 the Nationwide Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.